Of course, uh, today we got a chance to get to know you very briefly, of course, and know you within the context of this retreat. Um, but um, certainly can tell that, um, you know, I'm sure there's lots of restlessness and boredom and sleepiness and all the kinds of things that are so commonly encountered by new students and more experienced students. Uh, but we can, uh, but certainly there's a sense in the hall uh, that the retreat is unfolding. Um, and certainly the energy in the hall, the kind of energy that comes out of this kind of an intensive practice that we're doing, uh, it, it, it has its effect. It begins to transform the environment, the space that we're practicing in. And uh, it's tangible. You can feel it for sure. So tonight I would like to talk <clears throat> about the relaxation of inner freedom. That is the relaxation uh, within a vipassana or insight meditation framework. So often when we hear the word relaxation, you know, we hear that a lot because obviously we live in I'll say it's an understatement, an enormously stressful world, uh, and people are often seeking ways to relax in the middle of all that. And so there, of course, there are you know, many different forms, but oftentimes underneath the, the kind of the theme of these different forms, I'll go through a brief list in a minute, the theme is often about kind of, you know, managing the stress, but also um, kind of finding a way out and escape from the demands of our everyday life. And that's oftentimes what we associate with relaxation. So we can just take a look around us and just observe the culture as it's been unfolding. And, and many of the forms of relaxation are very, you know, they're ancient. And some of them are newer. And one of the main forms... I know in, in the United States uh, is television right? because television really doesn't ask. It's kind of a one-way process. It doesn't ask much from us. And in, in the U.S., at least what I've heard, read a few different places, that the average American watches five hours of TV a day. That's a lot of hours of TV, you know, given that you know, the average American, if they're employed, uh, they're working many, many hours. So it seems like some people go right from work to TV and then crawl into bed. So obviously TV is a form of relaxation. It's a form of stress management. It's a, it's a form of uh, relaxation. We have all sorts of myriad forms of entertainment which provide relaxation. We also have the newest phenomena, which of course is the internet, which can be extremely absorbing. Um, there are also kind of ancient forms of things like alcohol and drugs are often used as a way to relax the body and relax the mind, this physical activities, this hobbies. Um, and finally, there's the vacation, that sacred uh, vacation. And um, I think for most of us, when we think about vacation, we think about relaxing, we think about getting away. You know, we just, we're not going to work. That's not our vacation, it's getting out of work. It's, oftentimes means stepping outside of our everyday activities and going to some place that won't put demands on us. 
or it might challenge us in exciting ways, but it doesn't, doesn't, it's not imposing. We're not dealing with it. it, it hopefully it's not as stressful, let's just say. And so these are very common um, modes of relaxation. And uh, before I go into the limits of these modes, um, I'm very pro-vacation. I feel like people should get a lot more vacation days uh, than they do. I think if they had more vacation days, it might take a week to go and retreat uh, and then do other things or whatever it might be. But, um, you know, we recognize that, that um, when we don't have the inner resources, uh, we tend to rely on these particular forms of relaxation. And let me just point out some of the limitations of these forms. So we're not inherently putting a value judgment on any of them right now, but we're, we're just going to take a look at... Um, you know, what kind of impact they may have in our lives and whether they become obstacles in some form or another. One limit, which is, I think, pretty obvious, is that it takes a certain set of conditions coming together. People get two weeks. They get three weeks. You know, there, there's a certain set of conditions. They have to have the money to go away. Um, certain set of conditions. And then they, then they need to set up that vacation in a way that is going to lead to relaxation. And that's not always so easy, as we all know. Oftentimes, these forms of relaxation are seen as a refuge, you know, a refuge from the stress. We perceive them as a refuge. Uh, but what we can see once we begin to practice and, and get to know ourselves is that we take ourselves with our, us. You know, we're watch, we are, our minds are watching TV. Our minds are going on vacation. The habits that we have, the, the preconceptions, the opinions and the views, we take them into these places. We take them into these what are perceived as refuges. So there's a strong tendency for them to not really be reliable refuges. They're temporary. You know, they're, they're conditioned. Now the problem, I think, sometimes with an over-reliance on the kind of conventional forms of relaxation is that They can distract us. They can consume an enormous amount of energy. And when I say distract us, oftentimes they can distract us from taking a look and examining more closely what the source of our suffering is. Because if we're, if we're relying on these forms of refuge as a way to escape our suffering in one form or another, psychological suffering, stress suffering, even physical suffering, um, in, in some ways it becomes a... Um, it disempowers us. It can disempower us. Not inherently in a sense, but the way we use them can disempower us. Like alcohol and drugs, the misuse of alcohol and drugs. You know, it's a classic example. If we over-rely on them, of course, it becomes addictive. And then, of course, that reinforces the negative habits that we have. We all know that. It reinforces the stress. It reinforces the suffering. It becomes a major obstacle TV can become addictive. Internet can become addictive. You know, our wireless devices can become addictive and then they're no longer serving us. You know, and then they can consume an enormous amount of time and energy when it might be useful, and I certainly believe this to be true, is it gets in the way of spending a little bit more time with ourselves. And in some ways, it gets in the way of spending a little bit more time with the people that we care about. 
You know, there's lots and lots of examples of, you know, you see these commercials with the family sitting at the table and all five people are on their wireless device over dinner. Uh, you know, so you, you can see that um, when we get so absorbed in these or we depend on them as what we perceive as a refuge from the stress that we're dealing with, um, it can be extremely unsatisfying and it can actually perpetuate you know, the problems we have. So, relaxation in Dharma. Relaxation within the framework of the training that we're engaging in. I'm certainly aware of the fact that many of you may not feel that relaxed at this point. You know, that you can see that there's a certain amount of work and effort. I'm going to talk later in the talk about effort because I think it's very important to begin to get a sense um, you know, effort, I, for me, I know when I hear that word effort, um, it, it doesn't sound relaxing. You know, oftentimes I think of relaxation as effortless. And, and practice absolutely can move in that direction. You know, the more we develop our practice and our training, the less effort it takes. We discover things about effort itself and, and about how to facilitate mindfulness without so much effort. But frankly, you know, honestly, you can see that the training requires us to show up. You know, not just to show up in the hall, but to keep coming back and showing up in the present moment. And so that takes a certain degree of effort. But it's effort um, well spent. It's, it's effort well invested in. Because the relaxation that comes out of Dharma practice, unlike a lot of the forms of relaxation that the culture depends on, the relaxation that comes out of this kind of effort is moving us in a direction that's quite much more deeper, much more profound, but it moves us in a direction where the relaxation is unconditional. It doesn't depend on a set of conditions coming together. It, it, what we're doing is we're developing the inner resources so that we can nurture, and I'll say more about what I mean by relaxation, but we can relax, we can nurture relaxation um, in any situation we find ourselves in as we move through our life. The difficult, the easy, the smooth, the ups, the downs, the challenges, the changes, the losses, the illnesses. So what we're doing is we're developing the resources to respond to life and not accumulate stress. Not, we're developing the capacity to not feel like we have to move away from our everyday life. And in fact, what happens for, in Dharma practice is that the material of your life, the things that you encounter, um, is, becomes material for liberation, for freedom. The deep and profound learning and insights and clear seeing and letting go of suffering and discovering the path that leads to freedom can come out of any activity that you're involved in. And so the relaxation we're talking about in Dharma is peace. You know, unconditioned peace which is way more reliable than having a couple of drinks and sitting in front of the TV set. Okay. So, 
this form of relaxation. Obviously, it takes, takes some training. But what we're doing here is what we're doing is we're developing the inner resources. You know, we're developing the inner resources that lead to a very deep form of relaxation. And one of the forms of relaxation that we're practicing, it's inherent in this particular uh, form of intelligence. I won't go long on this. Spoke quite a bit about it last night, but it's mindfulness. You know, mindfulness facilitates a relaxation because what it does for us is that the habits that create non-relaxation for us, the habits that are not working for us, you know, the habits that are creating tension and creating suffering for us, when mindfulness meets those habits, it begins to decondition the mind. It begins to decondition those habits. Those habits begin to lose their power. And in the process of losing their power, those habits begin to lose the habits that are not helping us, that are not supporting us in our, in our aspiration for freedom and inner peace. It, it be, those habits begin to lose their grip on us. And we actually begin to taste a different kind of energy and a different kind of creativity, a different kind of confidence or faith when we begin to see that we don't have to be overwhelmed or caught or invested in our habits or, or acting out from an unconscious place. And, and, and that, that lights the spark you know, of faith or confidence uh, to move forward and to continue this process. And ultimately, that's the faith that we will rely on in Dharma practice, which is beginning to see the transformation, to begin to see the changes that occur from the kind of effort we're making, the effort to be awake, to be mindful, to be attentive to our moment-to-moment experience. We begin to let go of the habits that are causing us so much trouble. We begin to heal. You know, we begin to heal our past wounds. We begin to heal our emotional pain because we're meeting those experiences with open-hearted attention. And mindfulness is a very healing process. It facilitates healing. It facilitates that unwinding or relaxation. You know, one of my theories about why folks deal with sleepiness, I mean, everybody has their own theory about this. One is obviously we've been busy and we arrive tired. But another theory that I have, um, maybe this will help you not judge it so much, um, is that there's an unwinding process. I I mean, I'm sure of this, that the mindfulness practice facilitates an unwinding. Uh, And when we unwind, just think about that. You're letting the air out of the balloon. You know, of course, there's a deflation in that. Shouldn't have used that word. Um, There's a a lessening. Some people got that joke. Uh, (laughs) Not everybody, but... Um, there's an unwinding that happens, a facilitation. And, and certainly when I, when I first started practicing and I started getting to uh, sustained uh, meditation retreats and really working uh, at developing that continuity of mindfulness, one of the first things I started seeing was the body. You know, not only did I get um, much more aware of the tensions and the accumulation of tension uh, that, we, that many of our bodies experience because of a whole host of history and motions and injuries and you know, that kind of, all those imprints. But also the, the, the body, you know, it's not like automatic or something, but, but it, there's an unwinding, there's a healing that, that occurs for sure. You know, there are many therapists these days um, who are practicing mindfulness, but also integrating it in their therapy practice. And I've worked with, you know, several of them that come to the, came to the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And, you know, they would talk about, you know, just 
not only their own practice, but the fact that um, they love working with people who are doing mindfulness practice. You know, because so much of the work is done. You know, that, that the healing isn't, you know, the, the, the healing is facilitated by the mindfulness practice. Um, so that's the power of mindfulness. It deconditions. It, it, it starts releasing. It, it's not necessarily experienced that way right away. But if we continue the practice and persevere, um, we'll begin to see that there's an opening process that's, that's occurring. And you may feel that at the end of the retreat. Who knows? That just that your heart feels more open or you feel more sensitive uh, or more, more um, you know, connected, connected to your environment and the world that we're living in. And that comes out of it. That's relaxing. You know, in many, many ways, we could describe Dharma practice as relaxing into the here and now. Even though, as I said, it takes some effort, but it is a process of relaxation. We're not accumulating in Dharma practice. There's a letting go. (coughs) Enlightenment is described as a release. You know, it's not a becoming process or an accumulating process. It's a letting go. Another aspect of relaxation in this Dharma practice is the relaxation of calm. You know, it's a very, very, very helpful and supportive uh, resource, quality of mind to develop. And calm within this particular framework comes out of a steadiness of attention. You know, so in terms of working with the primary mindfulness object, Again, we're not setting up a model. We're just describing a little bit about what does happen over the course of time, you know, in effort and, you know, all, all of the above. But the relaxation of calm uh, comes from steadiness, working with uh, a primary object of meditation. And there's a, a host of them, not only in the Buddhist traditions, but other traditions, uh, where, where the focus is steadying the mind. In this context, we're working a lot with the body and the breath, uh, sounds, but the metta practice can be uh, a steadying practice, nurturing calm. There are, there are other traditions that use visualization or mantras. Uh, so um, all of those practices, if they're, done, if they're done in a sustained way, if you take to them in a certain way, t- conditions come together, uh, calm comes out of that. And for me, when I first began practicing, the first few years, I did several long retreats. And, and when we do a long retreat, you know, as you can only imagine, there's a lot of ups and downs in that. But, but generally speaking, what ha- does happen over the course of training your mind over the course of many days is that there is a steady attention that develops. Um, even though our minds are often self-judgmental and self-critical and finding the flaws and all of that, um, there is a calm that occurs. And for me, when I started doing longer retreats and... Um, I started, you know, tasting calm uh, in, in many ways. I would say for the first time in my life, I felt deeply calm. And to me, that was very faith-producing to, to taste calm because what it pointed to was that um, I had the power, you know, to work with my mind, you know, to transform my mind through my own effort. You know, when my effort was directed um, 
working with skillful means, which is what I would consider the, the, the form of practice that we're working with right now, it's skillful means for developing these inner resources. Um, you, to see and to taste that calm, you know, in the, in the middle of what had been a very stormy, challenging, contracted place, which was my life at that point, um, it was inspiring to me. And within the Buddhist teachings, I fell into that usual trap, which is, of course, I attached to that calm. It, was such, it felt like such a refuge. And of course, I attached, and it took me <laughs> a really long time. I won't even tell you how long. Uh, it took me to not only recognize the attachment, but to see the suffering in that attachment and to re- realize that that, you know, just like what the Buddha discovered 2,600 years ago, it's not the whole path. As pleasant, as calm, and as relaxed one might feel, you know, when the mind gets very steady, there's more to the work. And so, you know, can't attach, can't attach to anything because that, of course, creates non-relaxation because calm comes and goes, too. It's a condition. But to see that, even with its limitations, that it's conditional in a sense, it comes and goes, it's impermanent, um, it often comes out of certain set of conditions coming together, but still it's an inner, it's an inner process. You know, it's, a, it's, it's deep. It, it facilitates, if you use wisely, liberation. You know, it helps create the foundation to investigate and explore and see into the nature of suffering. And so calm, you know, calm, I think, Maybe there's a bit of a turning around in that, but, but calm's never really been, I don't, I don't think calm's necessarily valued in this culture. People, if they think you're calm, I talk to people about this all the time at work when they, when they become meditators and they've been meditating for a while, they get more calm at work, and everybody starts having a problem about that. Like, you know, why, what's, what's wrong, you know? Like, uh, you know, how come you're really excited and worried and anxious and, and stressing everybody else out uh, in doing like what everybody else is doing? Don't you, doesn't it matter to you? No, it matters to them, but they just, they're just not getting bent out of shape. Uh, there's, there's a reservoir that they're drawing on, but it's such a useful, think about it in terms of, you know, something I always say about meditation practice is that it does seem like you're doing it for yourself, you know, because you come and you're in silence and you're training, you're training your mind. But the reality is that the resources that we're developing here is exactly what the world and the relationships and the people that you encounter need from you. you know? So when you're calm, you're much more useful. You're much more skillful. Or at least the potential is there anyways. The wisdom might not be there, but the calm will really help a lot. And there are many stories about folks that are really agitated and overwhelmed, and they encounter someone who has some degree, I'll say more about equanimity in a minute, but the calm mind, uh, the calm mind definitely has the potential to seeing more clearly and responding more wisely and more skillfully. And that produces a lot of faith in us to realize that we can be calm in the middle of provocative conditions and that we actually have tools. That's the beauty of this practice. It's very portable. You, know, you can do it in a lot of different places and you can do it without shutting your eyes. So nurturing calm is another form of relaxation. And you can see you know, kind of the direction we're going is not so much dependent on externals, you know, conditions, much more about nurturing qualities that are within us, 
nurturing them, gaining access to them, discovering what our potential is so that it can be expressed in our everyday life. Another form of relaxation is the relaxation of living a life, acting in a way, in a way that doesn't bring harm. You know, the peace that comes from living a life of non-harm. You know, and and in, in, in Dharma practice and Buddhist teachings, and certainly just in a practical level of working with your mind, nurturing calm, nurturing steadiness, nurturing insight, clarity, seeing if our lives are really out of harmony. You know, we need to create we, we need to bring certain things along with us. If we're engaged in harmful actions, you know, um, that's, uh, you know, in fact, Buddha said, if you engage in harmful actions, you're not going to experience the kind of peace we're talking about. The mind will be t- too much out of harmony with life. And, and, and when we talk about non, engaging in non-harmful actions, we have to understand that it's a wisdom practice. You know, all of us probably engage in certain subtle forms anyways of harm uh, that might create a certain level of discord within ourselves or, or in other situations. We're not always so skillful. You know, some of our actions are very self-centered and so very uncaring or very indifferent. And, that, and those forms of relating to people and to situations can cause harm, whether we know it or not. And so it's not about becoming perfect, but it's about cultivating wisdom, valuing, you know, looking at your actions to see if they're going to bring suffering or not, or are they bringing suffering or not. And, and when we begin to align with this path, when we get a sense of how deep this path is, um, and it's not necessarily easy, but when we start living our life from a place of practice, There's a lot of faith that comes in that, but then also our life becomes simpler and less problematic. Our minds become simpler and they actually can begin to relax and we can begin to taste the sense of ease. I've always felt like, I've I've certainly seen this when I've done something that I consider unskillful. Unskillful and harmful is sometimes the same. When I've done something unskillful and when coming out of a place of practice, you know, you get much more sensitive to what you're doing and the impact of your actions. When, when, you, when you see that, when you become more sensitive, you can see what it does to the mind. And it's not just guilt that I'm talking about, um, but it's, it's seeing that it's out of harmony with the work that we're doing. And so we try to correct that when we can. You know? But it takes discernment oftentimes because situations are complex. So we're creating by, through our actions, we're supporting, we're getting behind our aspirations and we're supporting uh, the relaxation of inner peace, this unconditioned peace, this peace that we can discover in our life. We live the practice rather than just do the practice. And that's what happens with practice. You know, it, it, be, it becomes an expression of us rather than we're meditators. You know, it becomes you're living your life in a more meditative way. And of course, the, that, that can have many different levels, many different meanings. Um, but certainly, um, doing your best to, to not engage in harmful actions is, is certainly um, a, a significant aspect. When we start talking about unconditional relaxation or inner peace, it's a big part of it.
So I'd like to talk a little bit about one of my favorite topics, which is one kind of one of what a uh, significant aspect of relaxation, um, because I think it, 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 this particular approach really paves the way. That's how I see it. It's, it's cultivating a wise and compassionate attitude in our practice and towards ourselves, towards others, of course. That's a challenge for us. You know, wise, wise attitude, whether it's a wise attitude or compassionate attitude, they really merge in some ways. They're very, very similar in many ways. Um, because we have so many preconceptions um, about our experience, you know, we, we have so many value judgments, we evaluate, we compare, um, we impose the shoulds, like I should be more um, peaceful than I am by now. Anybody have that thought? Uh, how about the thought I should be more concentrated than I am? Anybody have that thought? Let's see hands. Hands, hands. Come on. Yeah, got it. Sure, of course. Uh, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't eat as much. Anybody got that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I shouldn't be as sleepy as I am. All right. I definitely shouldn't be as restless as I am. Or I should be as restless as I am, because <laughs> this is really boring. <laughs> Anybody have that? <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, you know, the shoulds and shouldn'ts drive us crazy, quite frankly. And we torment the hell out of ourselves with the shoulds and shouldn'ts. You know, you're sleepy. Let's, let's look at this, just one topic. This is a really good one in terms of attitude. Okay, how do we receive sleepiness on the cushion? Well, most of us are not happy about it. Some of us like to catch that little nap. They can do it sitting up. But mostly, there's resistance. And if there's a sequence of sleepiness, like two straight days, um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of judgments about that. Oftentimes, a lot of self-criticism, self-analysis, theories, you know, all the kind of stuff. Mind gets very contracted and tight. Uh, so is sleepiness inherently a problem? Because what happens when you go to bed? You want that sleepiness, right? You, you're, you know, you're looking forward to it. And unfortunately, sometimes in the interviews, people talk about being sleepy all day and then going to bed and being wide awake. That's a challenge, for sure. But that's not that uncommon. Actually, it's not that uncommon. But the point is, there's, there's not inherent suffering in feeling sleepy. The suffering is around how we're relating to it, what our attitude is towards it. It really is. That's it. There's the suffering. The suffering is not in feeling sleepy. Sleepy is just an expression of a particular low energy state. It has certain characteristics, like the eyes are closing, you know, or getting heavy, the head is tilting forward. There's lots of different expressions of it. Most of us are pretty familiar with it. There's no suffering in that. The suffering is what we're doing in relationship to it. If we just allow, you know, just had this attitude of, okay, I'm feeling really sleepy. And, you know, teachers have given us permission to open our eyes or stand up. So you stand up for a few minutes and sit back down again. You stand up again for a few minutes and you sit back down again. You know, there's an attitude of allowing for that energy to be there. That's just the way it is. There's no need. You know, we're conditioned, though, because we have certain expectations. You know, we mentioned that, all of that around attaching to expectations. Well, that gets in the way of a wise and compassionate attitude is when we come in to a retreat 
or we encounter experiences, we have expectations that we either should be having an experience or we shouldn't. And there's an enormous amount of suffering locked into our expectations. Enormous. And what we want to do is begin not only to include, what we want to begin to do is, you know, we could create this model, okay, don't have any expectations. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that if expectations arise, we have to get to know what those expectations are, meaning we look at them with an open heart. And there are many signals that we're clinging to an expectation. We're clinging to, and what I mean by expectation is we want a particular result and we're attached to it. So if there's an expectation of concentration and we're not getting it, the mind reacts to certain signals that you can do. You have to get, part of practice is definitely seeing these subtle forms of expectation because this is the source of so much of our suffering, is wanting things to be not what that, what, what's happening. It is that lack of allowing. Lost my train. Expectation, attachment to expectation. Yeah, it has everything to do with uh, creating a sense of results, you know. And, and how many folks, okay, we'll ask for hands on this one too. Um, how many folks still kind of think in terms of success and failure in their meditation? Good or bad <laughs> sittings, good or bad walking, right? Sure, sure. I can tell, tell you one thing, there's no such thing as a good sitting. There's no such thing as a bad sitting. That, it doesn't mean that there's difficult sittings and easier sittings or more concentrated sittings and less concentrated. But that particular value judgment, that framework of success and failure is irrelevant in meditation. There are no successful meditators. There are definitely meditators that go deep. There are definitely meditators that are enlightened, but they are not successful meditators. That's not the framework. They may be free and clear, but they're not thinking in terms of success. The most, one of the most enlightened beings that I had the privilege to work with, there was no way he thought of himself as a success. There's no way he related to practice as success or failure. So, being aware of the expectations, the signals. Oh, that's what I started talking about, the signals. A, a feelings like when you feel discouraged. You know, when you're feeling a lot of self-doubt or you feel despair or resignation or self-criticism. The basis of that response is an attachment to an expectation that things shouldn't be the way they are. You shouldn't be the kind of person that you are. You should be somebody else. You should be having another experience. There's the suffering. There's the suffering. So we want to recognize those signals and begin to understand how we do that to ourselves. And it's not easy to turn that around. There's a couple of different practices. You know, the practice that Sarah offered the training around compassion. That's definitely one of the significant practices that can begin to shift that particular attitude when we encounter painful experiences. You know, instead of telling ourselves we shouldn't have this emotional pain. And we all do that in certain kinds of pain. You know, we all have a certain amount of shame or embarrassment about certain things. And it's because we don't think we should be experiencing them. 
if we allow ourselves to have that experience, that creates some room. In other words, if we don't sit on judgment and we allow ourselves to have that experience, that's not resignation. That's not passivity. It's the opposite. We're allowing. We're meeting it with an open-hearted attitude. And that opens up the possibility of relating to it differently. You know, if we buy into the fact that we shouldn't be having it, it that, dis, that disempowers us. It, it creates a big problem oftentimes for something that it might be a problem, but we're making it much worse. We're not really able to explore it or heal it when we have that attitude. I worked with a um, John Master. Um, his name was Sheng Yen. He passed away a few years ago. He had a center in New York, and I used to go and sit these ten-day retreats with him. And he was obviously a different tradition. The method that he taught very compatible with what we're doing here. And I used to go on retreats. And I remember the first first few retreats, the the conditions were pretty difficult. And then they did some fundraising, and they you know st- things started getting better, just like here. You know the conditions started getting better. Thirty years ago, or forty years ago, maybe now is it forty? Yeah, it's forty years here. Uh, this hall didn't look like this. You know, people were in double rooms. It was really funky. Um, you know, it wasn't nothing like this. Take my word for it. Um, pretty difficult conditions. And we would, we would go, you know, we'd go and we'd sit. And I'm, I'm somebody who's a Vipassana student, so they tend to like to go their own way. Uh, and, you know, kind of you know, I, I did a lot of retreats and, you know, you do your own walking, your individual walking. You know, you, 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 there's a lot more room and space. You may feel like this is like, you know, we're really holding you down here with, these, with this, but actually there's a lot of freedom. You have 45 minutes to, between sittings. Um, you know, nobody's watching you. Uh, you could be doing anything for all we know. Um, <laughs> I, I hope that's not true, but I hope you're walking uh, mindfully. Um, but on, uh, on these retreats. Um, he used to come in like, you know, second day, third night, and talk about these retreats are like a vacation. I'll describe a couple of the conditions, the highlights of the conditions. Um, first of all, we have a 5.15 wake up. Probably people weren't happy about that. We, we had a four o'clock wake up. This is me comparing. <laughs> uh, we had a four o'clock wake up. And the way the wake up was, was not with a nice little sound bell. Uh, they went around with a hammer and a, a block of wood. And they would bang it. And there were 40 men, including myself, sleeping in the meditation hall on the floor. Um, and people were not sleeping that soundly. They had a lot of nightmares. Um, and they were screaming a lot at night. Uh, so you didn't get a, a lot of sleep. And you went to bed at 10 o'clock at night. So you know, by the time you settled down, all that, you, know, you probably get maybe five hours of sleep. If you're you know, not steady, but five hours of sleep. And then... Um, the whole practice from the m- moment you woke up to the moment you went to bed was group practice. Even the men's rooms were like large, you know, just men's rooms. You were well, like not a separate bathroom where you could close the door. Uh, so you, you ate together, you walked together, you slept together, you sat together. Uh, you worked together. Everything was done together. And for me, there was quite a bit of resistance initially to that. I'm thinking, why do I have to always be doing something with everybody else? Um, I'm used to going for walks and, you know, kind of all that. And so when he'd say it was a vacation, I'd look at him and say, this is not a vacation. This is not my idea of a vacation, remotely 
my idea of a vacation. This is like really hard work. And, you know, there's a lot of resistance to this, too. I'm not happy about having to conform so rigidly to everything. Yeah, you know, you sit, and they, they, you, you know, you're not supposed to move a lot, and if you're falling asleep, they let you know in not subtle ways. Um, so I'd say vacation, vacation, what's he talking about? And then finally, you know, after maybe towards the end of the retreat, I got it. What he was talking about was attitude. And, that, and that's where I learned so much around what I'm talking about right now is from him. Because he talked about your attitude. It all depends on your attitude. And when my attitude started shifting, and I saw, first of all, I chose to go to those retreats. You know, and, I know what those, and I knew what those retreats were like. And after the first retreat, I went back for a second, the third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, for eight years. And you know, I knew what I was getting into. And at, at a certain point, my attitude totally changed. And I realized I needed just to surrender to this. That it, it wasn't you know, some great drama that I was making it out to be, you know, that, that it was just a form. And I wanted to be there. And when my attitude started shifting, when I saw that I was holding on to what my past practice was, my, what my pre- past preferences were, um, I realized that all I had to do was relax and just deal with the present moment, which is what I've been doing in the Vipassana practice. But so much of it was my attitude needed a shift. You know, it wasn't, in some ways, it wasn't even a mindfulness practice because I, I was being mindful of the resistance, you know. But I, was, I didn't have enough insight to realize that it was my attitude. And the, and the retreats actually did start feeling like a vacation, you know. It definitely felt renewing and deeply and profoundly relaxing. And that's what wise attitude does, is it begins to lessen our hold, lessen the hold of the shoulds and shouldn'ts, the the places where we torment ourselves. When we're telling ourselves we shouldn't have an experience, we're creating an enormous amount of non-relaxation. And that's disempowering because if we allow ourselves to have the experience, that creates room for us to respond to that experience, to respond to the here and now. doesn't mean, allowing doesn't mean that you're passive and that you just stay with that experience and put up with it. No, sometimes we need skillful means. Like an example might be with body pain. Classic example, um, sitting, you know, choosing a posture because you think this is what meditation is all about. You know, your teacher did that posture, your colleagues or your fellow meditators have done that posture, so you're supposed to do it. And damn, I will never get up and sit in a chair. You know, that attitude. You know, second class, third class maybe. Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of suffering in that, that, that attitude, I can tell you that. Um, it might be nice and it would be a good exploration if you're sitting in agony because of the posture that you're choosing to try a chair and see what happens. You might find that your practice deepens. There's a relaxation, a letting go. And and, and it facilitates that capacity to be with the present moment. It allows us to go more deeply. It's a softening with this attitude. It's a softening towards ourself and the experiences that we have. And so there are a couple of different practices that um, are, are approaches we can take in terms of um, facilitating or, or nurturing or practicing uh, a wise attitude. And, and one is, it's an investigative practice and it's one that we teach at the center CMC where I had been teaching. 
um, in that investigative question is, can I make room? Can I make room for the present moment? Can I make room for what my experience is? Can I make room for the actuality of my experience? In other words, I'm sitting there and I'm feeling bored. Can I make room for that boredom? You know? and make, make room means being allowing. Can I just allow myself to be bored? You know, just to not give myself a hard time about that. To not tell myself a story about it. To not make a big me or mine out of it. You know, you're feeling worried or anxious or fearful. Can I allow myself to just have that experience? You know, okay, so I'm feeling anxious or worried. Okay, it's not pleasant. It's contracted. I'll say much more about that particular energy in a couple of nights. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it's not that it totally leads to complete sort of freedom, but it paves the way for insight. It paves the way for relaxation. It frees the mind, though. So that's the kind of energy that we want. That's the kind of attitude that we want to cultivate towards ourselves. And we can do it moment to moment. You know, we're watching our minds. Frankly, when we're watching our minds, a lot of times we're watching conflict. You know, we're, we're, we're watching. We're not always watching peace. We're watching. We're in conflict with what's arising. And a lot of that conflict is based on expectations and ideas and preconceptions about what should be happening. So, for instance, if there's body pain, the suffering can be around, it shouldn't be there. But then that becomes disempowering that attitude because then that doesn't, op- that doesn't open up the possibility of just responding with compassion towards it. You know, recognizing that all human beings and all of us are subject to pain. Having a human body, um, inherently we're going to experience physical pain if we have a body. So rather than thinking it's my body and feeling it's separate and it's just happening to you, you know, responding with compassion connects us to, to others. It connects us with the reality of having a body and a reality of, of being a human being, that we're not so alone or so isolated. So when we ask ourselves, can we make room? Being realistic, let's just say, we like to be realistic around here. In other words, that's why we're practicing, right? That's the virtue of having a practice is that's what we're doing. We're realistic. We're not creating some model. We're not creating some ideal. We're actually talking about what might be potential, what's a a skillful uh, direction to go, but we're also talking in practical terms, like in other words, you know, how to work with unwise attitude, for instance. And, And what we're saying here, what I'm saying here, is that our attitude gets us into trouble. You know, when we're judgmental, um, you know, we have all sorts of preconceptions about our experience. It gets us into trouble. Um, so, when we ask that question, can I make room? Say you're feeling sleepy. It's your fifth sitting of the day and you're still feeling sleepy or the seventh or ninth or second day. You're still feeling sleepy a lot. Um, and you ask yourself, can I make room for it? Uh, for many of us, we will say, no, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> you know, the, the, I don't like it. I can't make room for it. I don't want it to be here. And when is it going to go away? And this is a lousy practice. It, there's something else should be happening. We should have movement. We should have dance. We should have music. Something to keep me awake. Um, you know, sort of the resistance arises. You know, they wake us up too early. You know, whatever it might, I ate too much. Whatever the resistance might be. Um, so, 
you know, that's the mind oftentimes when it, it's encountering something that it doesn't like, there's resistance. But then the question is, is can I make room for the resistance? You know, can I allow myself to have that reaction? We're not suggesting that you should like feeling sleepy when you're sitting on a cushion. You know, I, I can genuinely say I don't like it. You know, I mean, it, it, there's not necessarily a lot of judgment or aversion to it, but you know, if I feel sleepy, maybe there's times I say, gee, I wish I had some more energy. You know, but, but it's not there. So then you just work with the sleepiness. And there's different ways, skillful means to work with all these energies. And same with resistance. I don't like it, make room for it. Okay, I'm feeling resistant. That's how I feel. I'm tired of it, I'm discouraged, I don't like it. Okay, can I allow myself to have that resistance? Instead of creating a model where you think you shouldn't have the resistance, because we're saying it's a good idea, or that resistance causes suffering. Sure, resistance causes suffering, but we'll create more suffering if we have resistance to the resistance. (laughs) If we judge the fact that we're resisting it, and we're not happy about the way things are, and we're resisting that, you know, we're in denial. We're, 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 not, we're not learning how to be with the actuality of our experience, certainly not in a compassionate way, but also not in a wise way, not in a way that will facilitate learning and insight. Because that's what we're doing. We're nurturing the capacity to learn. You know, like we learn alphabet, we learn all this kind of stuff, numbers, arithmetic, and all that, and that becomes a function, you know, of of thinking and you know, doing all the stuff that we do with our minds and, and thoughts and jobs and all that. Well, what we're doing here is we're facilitating capacity to learn something fundamental. And what I would say is incredibly fundamental, which is understanding the nature of suffering, how we create suffering for ourselves. Yeah. Understanding that source of suffering takes looking at ourselves and getting to know ourselves. And getting to know ourselves is facilitated as we change our attitude. And we say, okay, I'm just going to pay attention so that I learn something. You know, I love that thought. You know, just let's, you know, the retreats are just a, a time to learn something about yourself. And everybody in this room is learning about themselves. There's no, I have no doubt about that. Everybody is learning something. There have been many more moments of mindfulness. But then there have also been a lot of experiences that we have resistance to. You know, we bump up against things that are unfinished. We bump up against the habits of mind that cause us pain. But if we take the right attitude and we bring a mindfulness to it, we can begin to learn to untangle that tension, untangle that stress, untangle the ignorance that causes it. So looking at the source. And then, lo and behold, it's not just about suffering. You know, it's about freedom. It's about the release of suffering. But the release of suffering comes from understanding and from compassion. It's from getting to know yourself and taking a look in a very direct way. That's the kind of understanding that comes out of meditation practice. It's not the same level of understanding. that It's not secondhand. It comes from looking at your experience taking a look very directly and seeing what leads to freedom. And when we see what leads to freedom, it's tremendously inspiring. And I'm not talking about like you just get to a place of freedom, but it's a, it's a process of uncovering, uh, releasing, letting go, relaxing. And then we begin to feel more free. 
we begin to see that we're relating to the conditions in our life differently. You know, we're not causing as much trouble for ourselves. We're able to not repeat patterns and habits so that we're not constantly subjecting ourselves over and over again to the same forms of suffering. We're beginning to see more clearly. And we don't have to keep repeating and keep going down that dead-end road that's not really going to lead us to happiness. And think about the power of that, to be able to develop that level of discernment in your life so that we don't waste our life or waste our energy. And that kind of confidence, you know, it's not arrogance because you're constantly paying attention. You know, you're constantly looking, you're constantly learning. So it's not about arrogance or success. But you're learning something really important. You know, what leads to freedom and why it's so important. It's not just important for you. You know, it's important for the planet and this huge community of living beings um, that face challenges every day. And so, not only are we developing the inner resources for ourselves, but we can become a genuine resource to others. And that definitely is what we're doing here too. Okay. So, let's just take a minute. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings experience the relaxation of unconditioned peace. And may all beings be liberated from all forms of suffering. So thank you, and uh, please continue your practice. Uh, See if you can bring that quality of French attention to the final walking uh, period uh, of our formal practice together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.